We continue with our newest series called Storylines. It's about people, places, and things that show up repeatedly in the Bible and that have special significance and meaning. And today our storyline is storms. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a storm as a disturbance of the atmosphere marked by wind, and usually by rain, snow, hail, sleet, or thunder and lightning. When you hear the word storm, what kind of storm comes to mind for you? It seems to me that how a person answers this question may be influenced by where that person lives. For example, my friends who live along the Gulf Coast and the eastern seaboard might think of a hurricane. Those who live in Oklahoma and Texas might first think of a tornado. Those who live in the northern states, like I do, might first think of a blizzard, especially just coming off another brutal winter. And those living in the southwest deserts might think of a dust storm or the incredible lightning shows that the desert is famous for. For those living in the northeast, they may think of nor'easters, those brutal storms that come on shore from the Atlantic. Do you want to know what first comes to mind for me? Well, I'm going to tell you. But I want you to realize that it has changed in the last year. A year ago, I would probably have said a blizzard. I'm not a big fan of blowing snow and wind chills that are 30 degrees below zero. What changed for me was last spring, our town was pelted by a hailstorm. Hail the size of golf balls was scary loud against the side of our house. I thought the windows were going to break. The storm did incredible damage to the homes and cars in our neighborhood. And because of that, when it comes to storms, a hailstorm is now top of mind for me. No matter what kind of storm it is, all storms have some things in common. Storms are packed with power. They have the potential to cause serious damage to property and lives. And no human being can prevent them, because it is God who controls them. We're going to take a look at five storms in the Bible to discover what this storyline is all about. As we do, look for any threads that show up in these storms. Our first storm is a rainstorm, Noah and the worldwide flood. It is recorded in Genesis chapters 6 to 8. Some Bible scholars suggest that the flood occurred 1,600 to 1,700 years after the creation of the world. And that's a calculation based upon the genealogy records found in Genesis chapter 5. From what we read in Genesis chapter 6, the world had become an evil place. There were essentially two groups of people, believers who walked with God and non-believers who didn't. There were those who were good and moral and others who were wicked and evil. As time went on, the believers started intermarrying with the non-believers, resulting in the number of non-believers continuing to increase. And there's one specific group mentioned in this chapter, the Nephilim, 
a word that means to fall upon or to attack. These men appear to have been the terrorists of Noah's day. During the life of Noah, God made this assessment. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. As a result, God said, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. Then God directed Noah to build an ark in which his family and two of every kind of bird and land animal would be spared from the storm and the resulting flood. On the day of God's choosing, it started to rain and continued to rain nonstop for the next 40 days. In addition, God opened up the springs of water that were underground. So the water came from above and below, so much so that the entire earth was covered in water. Every living thing that wasn't in the ark perished. This rainstorm demonstrated the awesome power of God, and we see the destructive nature of the rain and the resulting flood. But what we really want to take note of is the why. Why a worldwide flood? It was because civilization was so wicked and evil. God decided to start over with Noah and his family. My question for you to think about is, how does our world compare to Noah's world? In terms of believer and non-believer, in terms of violence and evil, in terms of the strong preying on the weak. Fortunately for us, God promised never to send another worldwide flood. And the rainbow is a reminder of that promise. Our second storm is a hailstorm, the seventh plague that God sent to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. We read about it in Exodus 9. The day before this hailstorm occurred, Moses went to speak the word of God to Pharaoh. At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Some of the Egyptian officials heeded Moses' warning. Others did not. The next day God told Moses, Stretch out your hand to the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. While the hail was pelting Egypt, destroying crops, animals, and people, Pharaoh called for Moses and said, I have sinned. Yeah, right fake remorse. And then he told Moses that he would let the Israelites leave Egypt to worship the Lord. Yeah, right. Big lie. Nevertheless, Moses said that the hail would soon stop. But he also confronted Pharaoh with these words. I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. And they didn't, because they changed their mind once again about letting God's people go. This hailstorm, along with the other plagues that God inflicted upon Pharaoh's Egypt, was a demonstration of God's unlimited power and control over all of his creation. You know, it's hard for me to imagine the destructive power of this hailstorm, 
even though I experienced one last spring, but it was minor in comparison. And let's not miss the fact that all of Egypt was pummeled with hail, except for the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. God is the one in control of storms. But again, why? Well, Moses identified the reason. He said, I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Two points. Pharaoh and his officials were unwilling to fear, love, and trust in the God of heaven and earth. They were also unwilling to let God's people leave in order to worship the God of heaven and earth. The Creator God wants to receive the fear, love, and trust of those He created. And there's a blessing for those who do. As the psalmist says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Pharaoh and the Egyptians missed out on the promise of God. Our third storm is a windstorm in the Mediterranean Sea. It involved the prophet Jonah, who was running away from God. It's recorded in chapter 1 of Jonah. One day God came to Jonah with an assignment. He said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. According to 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah lived in Gath-Hefer, a border town in the northern part of Israel. Nineveh was just a couple hundred miles to the northeast. So, what did Jonah do? He headed a couple hundred miles in the opposite direction, to Joppa, a coastal town in central Israel. And from there, Jonah hopped aboard a ship that was sailing for Tarshish. 2,500 miles to the west. Tarshish was located in what today is the country of Spain. Jonah ran the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. So the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. This caused great fear among the sailors. Each of them cried out for help from their own gods. They eventually threw the cargo into the water to lighten the ship. And where's Jonah in this storm? Oh, he's below deck, sleeping. The captain went to Jonah, woke him up, and pleaded that Jonah call upon his God. Maybe he would do something. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then they asked Jonah, What should we do to you to make the sea calm for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, the sailors didn't want to do that. So they tried to row back to land, but the, the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The storm story ends with, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God sent another storm. And why? Think about the three storms we've talked about so far. In the first one, an entire civilization failed to fear, love, and trust in the God of heaven and earth. In the second storm, a country and its leader failed to fear, love, and trust in the true God. In the third storm, it was an individual. All three of these storms occurred because God was not being honored as God. You know, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer encouraged his readers to persevere in their faith and not fall away. And he ends it with, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All three of these storms were evidence of that truth. The last two storms that we want to look at provide a different perspective on how, on how God uses storms. Our fourth storm is another windstorm, this time on the Sea of Galilee. It involved Jesus and his disciples. We read about it in Mark chapter 4. This storm is also recorded in Matthew's and Luke's biographical sketches of Jesus' life and ministry. After a long day of teaching the crowds in Galilee, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee are common. They occur as the result of differences in temperature between the seacoast to the west and the mountains to the east, mountains which can reach an elevation of 2,000 feet. In addition, the Sea of Galilee lies 680 feet below sea level. All around the Sea of Galilee is warm, moist air. The air on the mountains is cool and dry. When the cool, dry air comes down the mountain and mixes with the warm, moist air, temperature and pressure changes can result in strong storms. After being woken up by his disciples, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet. Be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Then Jesus asked his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? The disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The storm on the Sea of Galilee provided an opportunity for Jesus both to teach his disciples and also to encourage them. By calming the wind and the waves, by simply speaking, communicated a truth of who Jesus was. He wasn't just a man. He was God. He was in control of things that no mere human being can control. Think about it. Can you stop the wind from blowing? Can you cause the waters on a lake to go from choppy to smooth as glass, just like that? Of course you can't. But God can. And Jesus demonstrated that he could do what only God can do. 
The encouragement that Jesus spoke sounds at first more like a scolding. Why are you so afraid? Literally, why are you cowards? Do you not yet believe? In other words, do you not yet believe that I am the Son of God who has come down from heaven? <clears throat> Seeing Jesus calm the waves and quiet the wind was a reason to believe in him. Our fifth storm is also one that occurred in the Mediterranean Sea. It is the storm that shipwrecked the Apostle Paul on his way from Caesarea to Rome. We read about it in Acts chapter 27. The first part of this voyage went smoothly until the ship reached the island of Crete. We're told that there were 276 people on board, so this was not a small ship. They traveled around the south side of the island. It was slow, it was difficult, they lost a lot of time. And because of it, they were now sailing during a dangerous time of the year to be on the Mediterranean. Paul warned them, Man, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our lives also. But the captain and the owner of the ship didn't listen to Paul. Instead, they wanted to make it to a harbor on the west side of the island and winter there. As they were sailing around the, along the shore, uh, south shore of, of Crete, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught up by the storm and could not head into the wind. So they let the ship be driven by the wind. And this went on for days. The crew eventually threw the cargo overboard, and then the next day they threw the ship's tackle overboard as well. Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night of this storm, they were still being driven across the Mediterranean. They could see an island ahead, though and decided to try to run the ship onto the shore. So the next morning, they put up a sail and headed for shore. But the ship got stuck on a sandbar. The soldiers had planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. But this isn't the end of the story. The island that they ran aground on was the island of Malta. And there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed Paul and the others to his home and showed them generous hospitality for three days. Publius's father was sick, suffering from fever and dysentery. 
Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And then when the crew was ready to set sail, Publius and his household furnished the supplies needed. Through this storm, God not only spared the lives of the 276 people on board, but he also chose to bless the people on the island of Malta. Without the storm, the ship would never have come to Malta because it was further west than the route to Rome. So what do we learn from this storyline of storms? It seems that there are two different threats, one for non-believers and one for believers. For non-believers, or people like Jonah trying to run away from God, God used storms to get their attention and to remind them that he himself is in control of his creation. For believers, God uses storms to teach us and remind us who he is, to comfort us and to bless us. And with both threads, God uses storms to accomplish his will. Now, we've been talking about actual weather-related storms, but there is a parallel discussion about storms as a metaphor in our lives. It seems to me that the applications would be similar. But maybe that's a discussion for another time. Storms. It's one of the storylines in the Bible with significance that goes beyond the word itself. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. And I want to remind you about something special coming up. On Easter Sunday, the Time of Grace television program with Pastor Mike Novotny will be a first. Pastor Mike will share his Easter message, not from the stage of his church, but from the garden tomb in Jerusalem. Be sure to check it out. You can watch it on television, on YouTube, or at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for another episode from our Bible Thread series entitled, Storylines. God bless.